Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this episode comes from LinkedIn. If you're in sales, you know cold calling is stressful, especially when all that effort isn't even leading to sales. It might be time to take a more informed approach. The new LinkedIn Sales Navigator uses data to provide insights and recommendations at a scale impossible for humans, unleashing seller superpowers and increasing revenue. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash trial. That's linkedin.com slash trial for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, the editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as a startup advisor, and my number one piece of advice is just to quit now because Facebook is probably going to copy you. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, I'm passing the show over to Recode senior finance editor, Teddy Schleifer. He interviewed Scott Belsky, the chief product officer of Adobe, who's also a venture partner at Benchmark Capital. Scott is also the author of the book, The Messy Middle, Finding Your Way Through the Hardest and Most Crucial Part of Any Bold Venture. Let's take a listen. Thanks, Kara. I'm here with Scott Belsky, who's the chief product officer of Adobe. He's also the author of a new book called The Messy Middle, Finding Your Way Through the Hardest and Most Crucial Part of Any Bold Venture. Scott, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. So Scott is someone who I feel like is very well known in the startup community overall. I feel like you have a lot of different hats. You've done a lot of different things, right? You've had a company. You are very, obviously very tied into the design community. You seem to be like a seed investor in seemingly every interesting company. I don't know how that happens. It's just like every company that – part of it is that I think you were early to yeah. the seed world um, and to the angel investing world. And a little bit of luck. A little bit of luck. But you can talk about that, though. I feel like, I feel like your name is everywhere. And – You've also had a formal job at a venture capital firm, and now you're back at kind of a big, bad corporation at Adobe. (laughs) And your new book is sort of a memoir. I mean, in some ways, it's a memoir of kind of – it's not, hey, on on Thursday I had, you know (laughs) – a great meal of omelet, a great well, omelet, but... Uh, I think I'm too young to write a memoir, too young but uh, to this, is, you know, this definitely was influenced by a lot of the experiences I had as a bootstrapped entrepreneur for five years, venture back for two years, three years of integration and acquisition, um, I, uh, you know, an advisor to many startups and also a venture investor. So there was some, uh, certainly a lot of prompts that came from my own experiences, but I also interviewed over 100 different Yeah, so this, 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 this was yeah. a journalistic project in some ways. You were... And certainly kind of using your relationships, but able to kind of— I was trying. —to, you know, put people on the couch and ask about kind of what their life was like. So let's just start off with, you know, most folks don't know who you are. I mean, so how did you end up—what what, was—I guess, let me ask this, this way. What was, like, your first kind of Silicon Valley experience? I think you were at Goldman after college for a couple of years? Yeah, so I, I studied design and business as an undergrad and had to kind of decide which path to choose. This was 2001, 2002, and, and at that time, you kind of cut your, cut your teeth in business if you wanted to or went the design route. And so I, um, I went and took, of all places, a job on Wall Street, where a year and a half into it, I was just uh, very, it was very clear to me I didn't want to be in finance for the rest of my life. And then uh, went to my manager, talked about it. She said, well, if you could have another job in the firm, what would it be? 
and ended up taking up this role in the executive office focused on organizational development, man, uh, leadership development, succession planning. It was almost like an internal management consultant job. This is in New York. This is not in here. New York. Okay. And uh, and I found myself actually using design again. Uh, I had Illustrator on my computer, and I was actually trying to use you know visual and and design to address like the projects I was given. And again, it was that kind of theme in my career of using design to organize information and organize people. And so it's during that next three years, still in this job at Goldman, but this new job, that I was thinking, gosh, you know, the most disorganized community on the planet is the creative world. And this is hundreds of billions of dollars of creative production annually done by people who are ultimately represented by agencies and headhunters. They never get attribution for their work. And they were using at the time DeviantArt and MySpace and some of these other products to showcase their work online. And I felt there was an opportunity there, which uh, was the genesis of the idea of Behance and uh, and getting into something that uh, was well beyond what I was capable of doing at the time. <laughs> Got it. So did you ever think, you, ever not, you never thought about joining a massive design firm or kind of going into the design world kind of full-time professionally? That was never something you... Not really. You yeah. know, I I, um, I always loved design, but I, I always felt like I would do something in the intersection of both business and design. Well, what was kind of the... I mean, was it seen as just not... You know, obviously there's a lot of designers who, you know, work in-house at, yep. you know, chief designer at Uber or, you know, folks who do nothing in technology at all, right? You could, you could have a very nice life doing that. Sure. I, I think at the time... And I didn't know the language of product design and user experience design. And in fact, back then, it wasn't as common of a term. Like, we weren't thinking beyond just a few companies. Not Every business wasn't thinking about the experience that their customer is having and mm-hmm. all of the, the stuff we use today. But that was always my um, my kind of what I had a knack for. And, uh, and I guess I was always trying to figure out how to apply that. Now, that's not just traditional design a, a traditional design skill set. It's actually more about customer psychology and you know what do they have to see as a default and how do uh, you know how do things stroke their ego as they use a product that that breeds retention. These are things I have language for now, but didn't then. But I was always trying to find out like what the application is of these interests. Right. Right. So then you so you leave Goldman in like mid two thousands two thousand five two thousand six and yep. you start with Hans immediately. Yes. Okay. So um, what was kind of the moment? What was the moment where you thought? You know, I want to do a startup. Well, I think it was uh, it was frustration, and I actually think that most great products and projects are are born from some degree of frustration. For me, it was all my friends who were uh, creatives of of different kinds, whether architects or illustrators or designers. You were in New York at this point. I was in New York, and again, I and went to school with a lot of folks who became designers, and I had a lot of friends in this community, and I felt they were some of the most talented yet disorganized people I knew. And I figured, you know, they always go to conferences and read books about creativity and design. That's actually the last thing they need. They don't need more ideas. They need more execution. They just need to have a better system for how they showcase their work and keep their portfolios updated. And so the idea behind Behance was a company to organize the creative world as opposed to um, boost productivity or creativity or connect people with each mm-hmm. other. And uh, and that was always one of those um, one of those principles of the company was we're not going to use the word creativity. We're actually always going to focus on organizing and boosting productivity in the creative world. And that started, of all things, as a paper product. Papers, um, that's like the white eight and a half by 11. Yeah, we actually made a made notebooks for creatives to get organized. And mm-hmm. we, um, I mean, there's a funny story we can get to later of the fact that one of our <laughs> partners of Behance was Garrett Camp, who had just bought back StumbleUpon. Yeah, and he was later, later the founder of Uber. Right, and he was using uh, our action books for his own work. And it was actually in a meeting a few years later where he was sort of whipped, he whipped out a, a little sketch of a little side project of his to get cars on demand. And it was one of 
one of our action books that, uh, that he was like showing me this idea that became Uber. Okay, there you go. <laughs> and then, um, so you guys didn't, you guys were, you were very tapped in at that point to yeah. the New York creative scene. Um, you don't have raise any money, right? I mean, this is, you were, you were using the word startup. This was a startup at the so time. We were bootstrapped. I mean, okay. I, this is back in- so maybe um, you just thought of it as, like a, as a, a company? I mean, what, what smart VC would invest in a company that's doing a paper product and has a conference to bootstrap themselves and has this idea of building a massive online network yet doesn't have any experienced engineers on their team that have done such a thing? So you, were you bootstrapped for intentionally or was it that you were pitching and people were saying no? Or what was kind of the- was kind of the experience there. Well, we weren't pitching. Maybe it was partly because I knew what the answer would be. Okay. But we were we were resolute on being a bootstrapped company that could actually choose its own destiny. And yeah. always in the back of my head, I was wondering during that five year period, uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll go solo, you know. And and I knew Jason Fried and those guys, and I kind of looked up to the way that Basecamp had been built, and I thought maybe we can kind of own our own destiny here and be a, um, a somewhat a lifestyle business. And in fact, we were set up as an LLC okay. where everyone had compensatory units and could be compensated based on profits. And so we had that going for a period of time up until a moment where I realized I was strangling the potential of the team. So bootstrapping, by the way, is just a company without venture funding. Correct. Um, so then you guys eventually take some money from Benchmark, right? Is that the... No, from Unisquare Ventures. Okay, not from Benchmark. Okay. And then how soon was that between that and the company being sold? Yeah, so it was actually, it all happened pretty quickly. So five years in, yep. we raise a round from Unisquare Ventures, Chris Dixon, Jeff Bezos, a few other angels. Okay. And then we're regular, uh, off reg- to the racers. Regular angels like Jeff Bezos, you know, making got angel, lucky angel investments the whole time. Right. The, and then... Um, and then he, and then, and then this, this, you know, small syndicate of folks that so we raised probably around six million, but we had not really raised any venture funding before, mm-hmm. so it was our kind of our first round, but also an A. And then, uh, long story short, about a year later, um, it just became very clear after Adobe had made this transition from software to services and needed to build a community to get more, to build the relationships with their customers, of which they didn't have really. You know, it used to be you'd fill out this like postcard, you know, and send it in if you bought a box software. And now you were on a monthly basis having a relationship with the company. So it just became clear to me that we were the perfect fit and the opportunity was right. And we had so little dilution. And I figured, okay, yeah. are we going to raise a series B and then a series C? And I kind of did the math on that part of the outcome. And then I also thought about for our customers and for the team, like where were, where where did we belong and where would be the best uh, sort of mother ship, yep. so to speak. So you sold it for like, I think 150-ish, right? Yep. Um, and then you spent a couple years in round one at Adobe. Yeah, so uh, three years. Okay. So and I went in saying, I'm, I'm not sure how this is going to go. Yep. And uh, at first I was overseeing just Behance and the integration. And then I really started to get excited by this promise of creative cloud, which was really at the time a business model innovation as opposed to a series of product innovations. But I was thinking, you know, if we're actually delivering updates every month as opposed to every 18 months and we have these services that we can build, like what does that really mean? And at the time, David Wadwani was head of the creative cloud business. He went on to become a CEO of App Dynamics, you know, right before. Sure. And then they ended up almost going public and then getting acquired. He uh, he was my boss at the time, and okay. and and he kind of said, "Well, what do you want to do, you know, here?" And I figured, "Well, let's let's start to build some of these services and mobile products." So that was kind of my second job at Adobe beyond Behance um, during my first three years there. Got it. And so then you have this really interesting part of your career, which was very public in, in some ways, which was the the, the joining of Benchmark, mm-hmm. right? Um, so Benchmark, obviously, one of the most well-known venture capital firms, hire people pretty rarely, very small, very tight-knit. Yep. You joined when? From Adobe, right? From Yeah, so I think, you know, I learned a lot of 
about myself in this process. So at this point, you are a, a, a well-known seed investor kind of on the side. This is yep. not your full-time job. Right. So all along the way, being at the intersection of design and technology, you know, my role with Behance, being in the right place in some of the right times, like the story with Garrett, yep. <laughs> and, uh, and working closely with people like Ben Silverman, you know, from the seed stage of Pinterest and working with Kayvon and Joe from Periscope and going through with them the acquisition into Twitter. Uh, that's actually how I originally met Peter Fenton. Uh, and so having this role with a number of different entrepreneurs, I became convinced that I should be an investor. And it's one of those things where everyone's telling you, well, this is what you should do next. You should do this next. You start to believe it potentially if you don't know if you don't know this part of yourself yet. And I always love working with product teams and investing in the potential of a product and the potential of people. And then I said, well, if I love doing this and I think I'm pretty good as an investor, I should just join a great firm. And so the opportunity to join Benchmark and, and spend a lot of time with that team you know, just seemed like the perfect fit. And then I think pretty quickly I, I uh, realized or I felt like I had hung up my spurs and uh, and it just wasn't the application of my own superpowers. You know, everyone has to feel like what, where, where are they, where are they in their in their zone most? And uh, and I just realized I love the earlier stage of working with products and helping um, sort of develop product strategy. And I think that from an operator standpoint, that means that I should be building products. And from an investor standpoint, that means I should really be in the seed stage. Yep. And so then I found myself in this kind of awkward position where, you know, do I want to, uh, do I want to do this for the next 15 years? I mean, it's a major commitment or not. And, you know, I think with my partners, the question was like, what's the right fit for me? And, and what do I, uh, what should I be doing? And, and that's when, you know, six or so months in, uh, I made that transition to venture partner and uh, and then figured, which I remain, you know, uh, right. to this day. And, and But then went back and said, okay, well, where am I most happy and where do I feel fully utilized? And to me, there was no question. My perfect balance is building products and, and solving product problems and working with early stage teams to find their product market fit. Right. Did I, I mean, I, that, was, that was very unusual though, right? I mean, obviously like, you know, as in Silicon Valley, people join these venture firms, especially august ones like Benchmark, and it's like seen as like, you made it, sort of career moves. Yeah, it's hard. And it also makes you wonder like, gosh, you know, I had never really had a moment in my career until that point where I felt like I had made the wrong decision or that I, yeah. you know, sort of failed, you know, in, 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 in how, I, how I felt I would, uh, I would take the next 10 plus years of my life. And so it's hard to uh, not only to extract yourself from a decision you've made, but also keep the relationships strong. Yeah, right. And, uh, and you know, and, 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 then, and then also figure out what, what you want to do next after that point. Because, uh, you know, when, as you know, when you join a, a big venture firm like this, you're suddenly labeled as, you're a VC. Yeah, right. This right, is what right. you're going going to do forever, and um, and, venture and that was, people are almost sort of famous in Silicon Valley. I mean, that was uh, difficult, right? And of yeah. course, like the you know the headlines um, don't always help in this regard. Sure, but uh, but I, I think what I learned from that period, and I certainly um, you know, this had an influence on, on some parts of the book as well, is uh, is just about. First of all, it's it, it's a, it, life is iteration, right? And, yeah. and trying to do things. And should I be beating myself up for taking a step just because everyone said this was what I should do as opposed to like really validating that myself? Mm-hmm. You know, I think I certainly learned something from it. But at the end of the day, I also learned a ton from being a full-time part of the benchmark team for over six months yeah. and, and having these ongoing relationships with the firm that I do now. So it's... It's hard to have regrets. Yeah. And we talk a little bit about kind of just like the role of like external pressure, uh, yeah. which I think like it sounds like, you know, it sounds like part of it is like listening to other people. Yeah. And that's something that entrepreneurs think about. Uh, I think very quickly, just as of what, six months ago, mm-hmm. 10 months ago, you're now back at Adobe for round two. How'd that happen? 
Yeah, so, you know, rotating to this venture partner role, I started to kind of, you know, stick my finger into many different things. And, yeah. and one of those things was uh, serving as a consultant for Shantanu, who's the CEO of Adobe. And um, he knew me, obviously, very well from my first three years there yeah. and was very excited about some of the, the prospects for the creative products. I mean, the company's doing been doing extraordinarily well, but I think the products are at an inflection point now where they can kind of transcend the desktop and actually legitimately be multi-surface systems. And and also, there's a market expansion opportunity now. I mean, Adobe has a great reach to the creative professional world, but these days, everyone wants to be creative and express themselves visually. Social marketing teams want to be able to output professional-grade creativity. The YouTube generation wants to be able to cut professional-grade video without having to learn a tool like Premiere Pro, which is pretty complicated. And so there were just these various inflection points, and he asked me to come in and work with the teams a little bit, which I did. And I didn't really have in my mind that I would come back. I, in some ways, mm-hmm. severed the umbilical cord to my own you know, company Never Behance. again at Adobe. Just, well, it was 10 yeah. years from start to finish of Behance right, right. and Adobe. I just kind of, that era of my life, even though I actually really enjoyed it, I just said, okay, it's time to move on. But um, when he started to socialize this notion of a, a chief product officer role and what that could entail in terms of bringing design and product and engineering together and starting to, to cut through a lot of the decisions that should have been made but weren't, mm-hmm. uh, what I like to call organizational debt, uh, I thought it was a really interesting, you know, thing that I thought I was the right person to do. Yep. And, you know, the fact that they were willing to uh, allow me to continue to do my non-competitive seed investing and have this venture partner role and 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 continue this book project, you know, I think that uh, I really appreciated that about the company's flexibility. Cool. We'll talk a little bit more in the book in a second. Uh, we're going to take a quick break now from a word of our sponsors. We'll be back after this with Scott Belsky, CPO of Adobe. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this episode comes from LinkedIn. It's hard to make great decisions when you have lousy information. It's even harder when you don't have any information at all. LinkedIn can help you overcome these challenges with technology that translates comprehensive, high-quality data into dynamic insights so you can make better choices. They call it deep sales. Their next-generation LinkedIn sales navigator is the first deep sales platform. With 950 million-plus members, LinkedIn is able to access high-quality, first-party comprehensive data on companies and buyers. The LinkedIn Sales Navigator can provide insights and recommendations at a scale impossible for humans, unleashing seller superpowers and increasing revenue. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com trial. That's linkedin.com trial for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. We're back here with Scott, and let's talk a little bit kind of about the the bones of the book here. We were talking before about, you seem to have taken incredible notes. I'm always amazed whenever I read some book from, it makes me think I'm not taking enough notes in my life. (laughs) Um, Maybe it'll be easier with like email drafts and... But, uh, you know, you read all these political books, and it's basically like people have contemporaneous notes of meetings with Nixon and I don't know. But yep. uh, so you were 
have, have these great anecdotes from kind of various parts of your life. Also, have done some interviews. I would love to just hear kind of how you tackle this. I know this has been a book that you've been thinking about writing for a while. Um, obviously, when you start kind of signing up with professional people in the book industry, it puts <laughs> fire under ass a little bit. I mean, yep. how did this come together? Yeah, well, I think um, about five or seven years ago, like five to seven years ago, I started a Evernote file um, called uh, Journey in Between Insights. That's what I called it at the time. This is on Evernote. <laughs> this, is not, this is not note cards that are like stuffed in between. The that is correct. It's an Evernote okay. notebook, I guess. And, uh, and whenever I would find myself on a phone call with an entrepreneur at 1 a.m. making a very bold and gut-wrenching decision or find myself in a board meeting, or find myself in an interesting moment, you know, whether it was as a as an entrepreneur or post acquisition big company, or um, in a you know in a in a venture pitch, right? Uh, when I when there was something that I would think about that was somewhat counterintuitive that I wanted to kind of think about more, I would just write it down, and uh, and then I would kind of come back to them oftentimes, and it was just a way of me kind of processing my own set of tactics and prompts that were relevant to me and I would want to share with other entrepreneurs and mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And and this book, this notebook over the years amassed to over 800 or so notes. And, uh, and I was on a flight at one point a few years ago and said, I should just start to actually tag them, you know, figure yeah. out if at there's some po- At this point, you're not thinking about it as a book. You're just thinking about it as like more Yeah, sort of personal way of, It's almost like things you would wish you could tweet that you'd yeah, two cents. Yeah, and some of them I would tweet occasionally. <laughs> so I went through and I realized that there was actually an interesting theme amongst them. First of all, they were all about generally navigating the volatility between the start and the finish. And uh, I've always been frustrated by our obsession with headlines. No offense. No, no. Right? It's fair. It's fair. It's fair. Yeah. <laughs> but like the starts, we love to celebrate when people leave and start something new or people get funding. And then we love celebrating whether it's an acquisition, an IPO, or a bankruptcy. We love the pithy kind of starts and finishes. And then this volatility in between is very hard to tie a bow around. It's a little too dynamic to be summarized and therefore basically goes overlooked. And the fascination for me was all of these insights essentially relate to volatility and they really fall into three camps, enduring the lows, optimizing whatever's working, and then that final mile, how to not screw it up. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about each of this. So, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, obviously, people, not just the press, but observers, right? Right. I mean, like if you're an entrepreneur and you have a friend who uh, is another entrepreneur, it's like, oh, you started a company, great. And then like, oh, how'd the company go? And like, obviously, in terms of the actual hours spent, most of it is just kind of grinding away. Things are, you know, on fire, slightly better. But I guess people would say like, yeah, he's doing his job. He's kind of still happy. It's, you know, how's it going? It's still going on. All right, move on. Yep. So, So the beginnings. What do you feel like the the way that com- people begin companies these days are is like I guess what w- what's the lesson for in this book for people who are kind of thinking about beginning companies? Yeah, and well, a few different things. You know, I think that um, when when you embark on a bold project that is likely to span the course of years, right? A few things. I mean, first of all, there are too many companies, especially in Silicon Valley, that are started out of a passion for a solution to a problem as opposed to empathy with the customer suffering the problem. And I actually think a lot like, of— I, w- I want to do X because I'm interested in X rather than the co- someone, yeah. else, someone else could care about me. There needs X. to be a better this. There needs to be a better that. Or the world suffers from this, and I'm going to solve it. And then we embark and build a team of people who are passionate about the market opportunity and the solution, and then you end up it's with kind something— of like a, kind of like a hero complex. To a it is extent. a bit. Yeah. And you end up with something that's typically at least, if not more, 30 degrees off, right, what the customer ultimately needs. And the really mundane yet critical thing to do in this process, of course, is to like be shoulder to shoulder with the customer's suffering— and uh, which is why a lot of the best teams in the early stages are, are not building scalable solutions yet. They're just building something that really 
hits the nail on the head for the customer. And then once you figure that out in a non-scalable fashion, then you start to think, okay, how do we do this in a way that might be, dare I say, profitable right in the future? Right. So I think that the empathy before passion piece, I also think that we typically fool ourselves into thinking that the the vision for what this might be five years from now is enough to keep the team engaged on an everyday basis. And I talk about in the book this notion of short-circuiting your reward system so that you know the stuff that you typically rely upon for progress indication like uh, revenues and customers, when that stuff isn't there, how do you keep people engaged? I mean, I would go on the record saying I think the competitive advantage of most startups is just sticking together long enough to figure it out. Right, just not 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 giving up. Especially hard, by the way, in Silicon Valley with all these headlines of companies that seemingly are doing better than you are, right? Yep. And you're constantly questioning, should I be here? I've been heads down grinding for two years. Seems like we're not making any traction. And so-and-so just raised 30 million from this company. You know, what, what am I doing wrong? And that's a, one of the disadvantages, I believe, of being in a hot spot is that your loyalty and the, and the collective perseverance of a team, you know, is at risk at all times. Yep, totally. And then in the, in the middle stage, which is, I mean, the whole point of the book. Yeah. Kind of I mean, do you think that, I mean, too many people are, are I think that the value of the book here, right, is the fact that if there's some entrepreneur out there who is going through a messy middle, like, they probably think, like, I screwed up, right? Like, mm-hmm. things aren't getting better. And, like, the whole point of the book here, it seems to me, is that there's a way to that. This is common, right? This is like, and this isn't this isn't just entrepreneurship or startups. Like, you know, marriages of ups and downs. By the way, it's friendships the best, it's, of ups it's and the downs. best case scenario. Yeah. The volatility, first of all, is is um, there's something to be mined from this volatility. It's at its lows is where we kind of build the muscle memory. You know, I like to say, you know, that resourcefulness is more important than resources, mm-hmm. and you only get resourcefulness from having to be constrained. And when I think about you know, Joe Gebbia and, and and the team at Airbnb and there are like two iterations before the third that worked. Or I think about, you know, Ben Silberman consistently being underestimated by the tech media and kind of being discounted because a lot of his customers were middle American moms in the beginning. And, you know, I think about uh, the the teams that I actually most admire are, are those that have endured um, a lot of anonymity, ambiguity, uncertainty, and have in some ways mined those lows to build great process and great culture. And I would I would just say that in this volatility, we're not at our we're not our best selves at the lows, obviously, because we make decisions out of fear. We're not our best at the highs because we are making decisions, oftentimes falsely attributing the things that we did to the things that worked. Yep. And so the message of this middle part is to, you know, have tactics to kind of make, you know, make the most and endure the lows and then optimize the hell out of anything that works. Yeah. So, so the, book, the book is kind of organized into these like little five page, you know, it's, it's something that's very easy to read kind yep. of with, you know, even if you only had 10 minutes on the bus or something like that. Yep. What are some of your favorite lessons? I mean, I have well, my favorite one is the do your fucking job one, <laughs> um, which do you want to explain that? Yeah, sure. I mean, in the endurance section, which was the hardest part to write, by the way, because it's kind of painful to write and read. It's just about the moments where you're not sure how to do something or where you are or where you're going. And it's actually the reality of anyone's journey. This is not particular to people that are not doing well. It's 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 a part of any, any bold journey. But the do your fucking job piece is uh, about what I and others that I interviewed do for themselves when they have to let someone off, lay someone off or kill a product that's working but isn't going, is, doesn't have the growth rate that is required to break out. And uh, these are always the difficult decisions to make because the easiest decision to make is to not make a decision yet. But when you're just like, sometimes you just have to whisper to yourself, 
just do your fucking job, and then you liberate your team hmm. to be so much more productive and focused. And so what are what how do you hold yourself accountable to doing that? What are the little kind of tricks or hacks? And I mean, I would always literally whisper to myself DYFJ before some of these moments just so I could uh, when you need to kind of be kind of a kick a, my ass when you, need to be, when you need to sort of be kind of a cold emotional like emotionless killer yeah well I mean I think that I also talk in the section about how you know the sensitivities we have to the people that we will impact with our decisions are good I mean, this is what makes us effective leaders is understanding how people will feel. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean that decision shouldn't be made because by not making it, you contribute to that organizational debt, right? That accumulation of decisions that should have been made but weren't. And that's where you end up losing your A players who would rather work with a team where they can make the freaking decisions and move on. Yeah. What's another one of your favorite kind of lessons from the from the, from from the, the book? Well, I think that another one is... Uh, Gosh, there's a lot. I mean, it's breaking the long game down into chapters. And I talk about how Ben did that at Pinterest. You know, I talk about the short-circuiting the reward system piece, which I mentioned earlier. I, I share a story about how in the early days of Behance, we would type in Behance into Google, and it would always say, do you mean enhance? Do you mean enhance? And it was like, damn it, we're a mistake, <laughs> you know? And actually, it was good because that was one of those near-term things we could optimize towards and feel progress. And uh, and so lo and behold, like one day we typed in uh, Behance and it actually said Behance. And then like, I think six months later is back in like 2007, 2008, Beyonce became super popular. And we lost our SEO again. So lots of Startups little- Startups are luck, right? Yeah. Lots of little funny things like that. And uh, yeah, there, there, there are a bunch of things. You know, and the last thing I would just say is I, I equate the um, this journey in the early stages with all the volatility is kind of like a, a five to 10 day road trip with the windows blocked out and your team in the backseat and they have no idea where the hell they are. Yeah. And if you just kind of keep driving and you, cause, cause you know where you're going, like no one's going to be with you anymore. They're going to start to freak out. But if you can narrate your team through the journey and merchandise progress to the team, um, manufacture wins along the way that are not fake wins, but are sort of a uh, celebratory milestones that matter. Um, but may have otherwise been ignored. Like there's this whole, there's this whole system of narration that leaders need to do for their team in the endurance stage, and a lot of folks don't do it because they're freaking out themselves. Sure, and it's important. Do you feel like this is something that I mean? What's kind of the picture to someone who's you know listening who's not in startups, not in tech? I mean, like this is. Oh my gosh. I mean, this applies. I have some feedback from early readers are like, hey, if you uh, substitute the word venture for rela relationship for venture yeah. or, you know, or new product in a company to venture or book project. I mean, I also did interview writers and artists for this book as well. Yeah. And I have a bunch of parallels for some of these other industries because in essence, anything bold enough has this volatility. Also, we're not hardwired for this stuff. I mean, the, the average life expectancy in the 17th century was like 27 years old or yeah, something. There was no messy middle. There's just... Well, I mean, the idea of spending five to 10 years on a project right. when life expectancy is so low is pretty unwise. It's very bold, though. So there you go. <laughs> it is bold. But it's, you know, we're, we're fighting against our own sort of human tendencies as well as society's desire to kill off anything that's new and threatening. So there's there's a lot to be considered in any in any walk of life for, for bold creative pursuits. You have been around a lot of really interesting startups really early. Um, we talked a little bit about Pinterest. Love to hear the story about probably the startup you're most closely identified with outside of yours is Uber. How did that happen? I mean, so we talked before about Garrett Camp, um, who's the founder, one of the founders of Uber. But how did that relationship kind of blossom? And you were a very early investor and had presumably made a good amount of money on this. I mean, how did this relationship happen? Yeah, well, I mean, Garrett and I have known each other for many years. And um, we're both kind of product-minded investors and leaders. And when he, 
he had bought back StumbleUpon from eBay. Forget the exact date, but it's probably in the 2007, 2009, whatever time frame. And I was a bootstrapped, uh, meaning no venture capital backed company, uh, Behance CEO, way overwhelmed with my own responsibilities. And we were doing a partnership between a few different partnerships between StumbleUpon and Behance at the time. And because uh, Behance content performed well in StumbleUpon, and we were finding more ways to work together and had become friends. And he was in New York in uh, in my office, which was also adjacent to my apartment. And uh, so this is back in the day. And he, uh, at the end of the meeting, kind of whips out uh, some sketches of what he was thinking about as a as a as a mobile app to um, be able to get a get a car without having to call and book and wait um, for you know a, a schedule in advance. And I remember my first thought being, you got to be kidding me. You just bought back StumbleUpon from eBay and you're like thinking about launching a mobile app livery company. You know, this this isn't a good idea <laughs> for you. I mean, literally, how do you handle that? And he was just, you know, tinkering with this. And I think he was also, of course, in the process of bringing together some folks to run this full time so he could continue doing his job and maybe serve in some sort of founder and, uh, and chairman type role. Right. And how involved were you kind of in the early days? So in the early days, we would just talk about product. And so he would pitch, um, you know, we'd talk about, I remember one one story, which I talk about in a little book, bit of in the book, because I learned from him around this, was this this importance of narrating like or developing the brand and the message before the product. Because one of the earliest things I remember him talking about was the distinction between a brand that um, everyone aspired for as opposed to one that felt accessible. So there was this question of, is it everyone's personal driver, which is aspirational, or is it more like a taxis on demand, which is like a mm. accessible... This is like, you're talking about like, what is the slogan, essentially. Yeah, well, right. slogan, but also it informs the design of the, the brand itself. Is it like sleek and seems yeah. expensive, or does it seem affordable and accessible? Right. Is everyone's it, personal driver sounds like, why don't I need a personal driver if I'm, I make 60K a year? Yeah, I think that the idea of, um, but that was, a, it, it actually ended up going with the everyone's personal driver as a way to make um, people oh, want right, to right, aspire okay, right. to have something that they wouldn't ordinarily have been able to have. I feel like that's not very active in the branding now, but. I think it's probably evolved yeah. for sure, but it's actually, a you know, another thing to think about is that the right playbook at one time in the business can become the absolute wrong playbook at another time in the business, mm-hmm. both from how it's led as well as what the brand and the message should be and whatever else. And I think that, uh, you know, the decision to make it an aspirational brand to start probably got the right first adopters and then the, launched it in the right way. Yep. So then another one is Pinterest. What's the, So you knew Ben. Yeah, so Pinterest. Obviously, I'm sure the, your background, obviously, in design. Yep. Helped. Yeah, Ben was, I mean, Ben couldn't raise his seed round in on the West Coast, so he resorted to coming to the East Coast. <laughs> Had to deal with, with the Scott Belskis of New York. I mean, the rather than the real people. And, uh, and you know, and, and Pinterest was a, was a grid-based design system, and it was extraordinarily visual, and that was very much what Behance was at the time, and so that's how... We connected, and Ben has always had a drive towards engaging designers in his product. And what I also noticed when I first met Ben, even though they were just kind of testing an early version of Pinterest at the time, they just rotated from like a previous incarnation of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed while the traffic was very low to Behance, it was like a high growth, low number. And I, w- I, I remember being curious about some of the decisions that Ben had made. Like, for example, this is at a time when, when bookmarking sites like Delicious didn't even have visuals. 
than any other website that had visuals like Tumblr and others. When you'd click on an image, it would bring you within the site because it was always an optimization for page views. Everyone on, on the web was optimizing for page views. And so you wanted to keep the customer in. And what Ben did was the opposite. When you clicked on an image, you actually went out. You went to an external URL, which while it minimized their page views, which looked bad on paper to some investors, and that's yep. maybe why they had struggle raising money, but they were driving traffic. And so all of the recipients of this traffic, these click-throughs, were like, whoa, what is this Pinterest thing? And that, of course, um, led to them incorporating pin buttons and all the other stuff. And so I, I found that sort of contrarian view of developing a web product at that time very interesting. And that's what brought me in as a product advisor. And when he was raising his seed round, I, I said, sure. And I remember this is actually my first ever seed investment. Oh, really? Okay. My wife was like, what are you fucking doing? Like, you, what, is charity? <laughs> you're like barely paying yourself. Um, right. But I also felt like I could learn a lot from him. And Ben had a West Coast network as well. And I think it was uh, one of those decisions that um, I made for different reasons. Yeah, and obviously paid off. So, you know, you can pay So far, so good. Yeah. Do you, do, I mean, do you, you obviously have a full-time job uh, at Adobe, benchmark I mean, how much seed investing do you do these days? I feel like I still see your name on lots yeah, of Yeah, well, listen, I, I, get, I get to meet a lot of folks now that are doing things that are, that have, that overlap or really value product design um, and are looking to build design teams and product teams. And, I, and when different firms introduce me to companies that they're excited about to help them with that, if I really resonate with the product and the vision, you know, then I'll participate as an investor. And I do try to save some time every week to meet with entrepreneurs because it keeps me on my toes. It helps me understand also like how they're designing their products. I mean, I have products like Adobe XD now that I'm aggressively trying to um, help meet the market's needs. And to be able to work with the most forward-thinking design product teams is really helpful in my day job. And it keeps me on my toes and it, you know, it feeds a, a, another sort of appetite that I have. So I try to make the time for it. Do you feel like you gravitate still toward startups that kind of have design at its core? I do. Um, like you're not, you're not doing some enterprise software company. Yeah, I'm here, not right? doing tons of blockchain stuff. Uh, right. I, you know, I think on the enterprise side, I do do a few things where I feel, I believe that they value the, 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 that belief that consumerizing experiences is actually a competitive advantage in the enterprise, which yeah. I do believe. And then I'm focused, you know, I've been doing a lot of work on these uh, direct-to-consumer brands and, uh, and Warwick, the Warwick, picks and shovels Warby Parker, companies, exactly. Right. And, uh, you know, worked with Warby Parker, Sweetgreen, Roman, Outdoor Voices, a bunch of companies in that space. And I'm super interested in products like Airtable and like others that are, that are, um, that are, sort of enterprise, but also consumer, and they're adopted usually on a one-by-one -one basis. But then before you know it, teams and companies, you know, right. get on board. Are you, I mean, there's a lot of investors that would sit in your shoes these days that think that, like, you know, the opportunity set isn't really there anymore. I mean, you hear this from some consumer investors who feel like, yeah, you know, it's, a, it's a lazy comment, right, I know. that it, they make. It, right? It, it, is, it is a mainstream comment, though. Sure. I mean, like, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you think, you think it's lazy. Well, I think that um, whenever we start to uh, discount the probability of uh, something extraordinary going on is when you, you know, find something extraordinary going on. So I love when folks are discounting the consumer sector or, I mean, you know, discounting the whole world of direct-to-consumer brands as non-venture backable or mm -hmm. to me that's a... It's an example of where you know people are starting to get lazy and they're starting to generalize and and I so that that gets me curious. Um, the the thing about you know traditional venture capital is it's transactional. You're always trying to get ahead of traction, and so you can't help but uh, always be sort of bringing in all the data around you of what people are saying is getting traction and not getting traction. It makes you very tilted on the world before you. I always find that 
great investors really tune into like certain curiosities that they have that others don't. And then through that insatiable curiosity about a topic or a area of opportunity, you know, end up asking the right questions and mm-hmm. finding the right opportunities. Is there anything about like the startup world? I know a lot of your book is about kind of what individual leaders should do differently. Mm-hmm. Is there anything about the startup world having done this, you know, you're, you're somewhat of an old guard and even though you're not that old <laughs> in, in the seed investing world at least. But I mean, like, what would you change? Like if you were in charge of, you know, designing kind of the way that startups raise money or oh, operate. where do I get started here? You know, I think that... Softball um, headed out. Yeah, there's a few different... They, they, they range in the spectrum from somewhat obvious to maybe a little bit polarizing in terms of my ideas on that front. But, I mean, it goes without saying that the abundance of capital feeds laziness on all sides of the spectrum from the, uh, you know, LPs become less discriminate on where they put their money. LPs are the, the investors, venture capital funds own investors. Who right. Are endowments, hospitals, stuff like that. And then the venture capitalists in, the, in there in, in turn like have too much money and they start to be a little less discerning. And then companies, you know, figure since I should, can raise the money, I should raise the money. And here's the tricky part. Sometimes that's right. I know Stuart Butterfield has come on record saying, hey, I'm going to raise money for Slack at this valuation because I can. And with his velocity of a company, that makes sense for him. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it makes sense for most folks because then, you know, that's the whole like, you have resources as carbs and resourcefulness as muscle. Like you're going to just throw carbs at every problem and you're not going to end up the having carbs anything. carbs are really good though. <laughs> they <laughs> taste so good at the time and they really make your problems go away for a moment. Okay. But, uh, but not over time. And uh, so I think that there's, you know, there's constraints in the system that I would love to see. And, uh, and I advise companies to like not get ahead of themselves mm-hmm. because I have seen so many businesses that I've invested in that haven't done as well go out after a, you know, big seed or A round and then have to do like either an even money or down round. And then their employees get this message that the last two years have been for nothing and investors start to like demand more aggressive terms. And it's sort of the beginning of the end in many cases. So that's one thing. The other thing I would say is it would be interesting here on the on the bold idea side. Yeah, you mean the, what's the, the most, po- most side, polarizing opinion possible? You know, we, all, we always have the, you know, the safe notes and like the way that companies, standard ways that companies raise money, whether it's a convertible note or equity. But there's no standardized way of companies sort of returning capital and and saying, okay, this isn't working. I've been in some companies that started as a like a big data play and became an online car sales thing and then switched to a third thing. And as an investor, I'm just like, I didn't invest in the second or the third <laughs> incarnation of what you're doing. And you're just kind of using the money at this point to like triangulate in the ether. What if there was a way for companies to kind of be able to at some point say, hey, I'm just going to push the eject button because this isn't working and then have a agreed upon way that capital resolves all debts, maybe compensates the the founders a little bit Hmm. and just lets everyone go on their merry way as opposed to like stringing out a long, painful 10-year death journey. Because you're you're in, you could be in for a really long time. You invest in 2012. It's 2018. The company's pivoted four times. The founders are. And and founders struggle with this. Like I talk to founders who say they don't want to let down their investors. Therefore, they're going to keep at it. Yeah. And I'm like, well, if you have less conviction now than you did when you knew nothing, then, then like eject. But there's no standard way of winding that down and returning and, yeah. and without questions asked, right? And it would just be interesting if it was more commonplace and accepted for the eject button and and for like an actual in, uh, incentives in that in that instance that sort of take care of everyone at that moment. It is sort of controversial, and it's all, I don't know if it's entirely a financial question as much as it is like people don't want to say they failed at it, right? right? And it's like I mean financially, yeah, you could certainly come up with a structure where you know I mean that's why shareholders will sometimes sell their shares in the secondary or 
uh, you know, find some other way to eject. But most of it's basically, I, I mean, I feel like there are times where founders basically just kind of ghost, right? And don't, you don't really get any updates and you sort of assume it shut down. And <laughs> It's funny, I was talking to an entrepreneur the other night who was telling me that at Google they're doing, they're writing term sheets to employees that have ideas that would want to leave. Yeah. And they're basically saying, we'll fund your your like seed essentially with a few million bucks, so like large amounts, and and your equity continues to vest for two years. Your Google equity, Google equity, right? But uh, if it doesn't work, you just kind of take pick up where you left off at Google. And so I think it was their way of saying, hey, these top people want to leave and start their thing, and we know that most of those things don't end well, and the cost of recruiters and getting a Google employee that will perform really well is so high. Like, we'll just write these term sheets to people and have these conditions and keep their equity vesting yeah. so that they feel like this opportunity to just, like, come right back in if it's not working. Yeah. And it's actually interesting. Google, actually, in that case, is sort of betting on the person's going to fail. Well, actually, <laughs> it's funny because I, I was hearing this and I was thinking, oh, I mean, actually, this is super, super smart of Google because it also gives the entrepreneurs this, like, weird exit opportunity that in two years, if it's not working, yeah. like they can just kind of go back and pick up Safe where they left off, and, you know, which back. is not a healthy dynamic for a startup. Like you actually have to feel like you have it all on the line and you have everything to prove for yourself and uh -huh. there's no safety net. So I'm actually not sure if it's a good idea for the entrepreneurs. I think it's brilliant for Google. For yeah. Google. That's, we'll leave it there. Scott, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Teddy. Thanks all for listening. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell a friend. You can find me on Twitter at Teddy Schleifer. Scott, where can folks find you? At Scott Belsky and uh, wherever else you Wherever hang else out. you hang out. Um, now that we're done with this, go check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows uh, probably in the same place you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rico Deco, and thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, our producer, Eric Johnson. Kara Swisher will be back here on Monday. Tune in then.